0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us on the City Point Church Sermon Podcast, where our desire is to help you follow Jesus. We are so glad that you are here, and wherever you are listening from, we believe that God has something in store for you through today's message. We're going to be picking things up right where we left off in verse number 6 of Colossians chapter 2. Let's dive right in. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is God's word for us this morning. The title of this morning's message is Under Pressure. Under Pressure. I don't know if you remember the first time that you heard or learned about the concept of peer pressure, but I do. I have a very vivid memory. I was in the fourth grade, and I'm sitting in school, and in walks to our classroom a police officer from the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. And he walks to the front of the classroom And he begins a presentation called D.A.R.E. You guys familiar with Dare? D.A.R.E. stands for Drug Abuse Resistance Education. And back in the 70s and 80s, there was a massive uptick among drug abuse among youth. And so the Los Angeles County developed this program called D.A.R.E. that since has gone global. And it's an awesome program that essentially tries to accomplish two things. The first is kind of expose the threat. Expose the damage caused by drug abuse. It's to educate these students on the effects that drugs can have on an individual's life and a society. But the second thing, the second purpose of DARE is to teach these students how to say no to drugs, it's to teach them how to resist peer pressure. Now, I don't recall if I walked away from that presentation as a fourth grader having a full understanding of drugs, I'll be honest. I don't think I quite understood what he was talking about when he was like, it'll ruin your life. I don't, I don't think I understood that. But I do have a vivid memory of understanding full well what peer pressure was. So now I'm pretty much a pro. And when I look at Colossians chapter 2, when I look at the letter to the Colossians, I see peer pressure all over it. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's essentially giving the church at Colossae his bad theology resistance education. He's doing two things. He's exposing the threat of bad theology and the effect that it will have on a church that buys into the bad theology, but he's also calling the church to a steadfast resistance against bad theology, to not walk away from the faith. they've received. And so by way of introduction, look at verse number six and seven. Paul writes, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. To sum it up, Paul is saying, hey, you've received the truth of Jesus. You've accepted him as your savior. You put your faith in him. Continue in his truth. Don't walk away from it. Don't wander. You continue here. His truth is now our home. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. Guys, don't give in to the cultural pressure on you to walk away from your devotion to Christ. Paul's bad theology resistance education. Because you see, Colossae was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious city built on a major trade route. And so what that meant is you had people coming to Colossae from all around the known world and coming with, bringing with them, they were were bringing their gods, their influences, their version of Jesus or Christianity or their version of truth and philosophy, their traditions. And this was creating quite a dilemma for these early Colossae Christians. And so Paul, in an effort to protect this church, he calls them to resist, to stand, My friends, not much has changed since what we're reading here in the letter to the Colossians. The 21st century church is under pressure today. Now, I don't know what that pressure looks like in your life. Maybe it's pressure from a family member, parents who raised you in a certain religion and they just can't even fathom why you'd walk away from that religion and embrace Jesus. Maybe pressure from a friend, a friend, a friend who might claim no religion, and so once again, they mock you, they ridicule you, they can't understand why you would embrace Jesus and his truth. Maybe it's from peers or a professor at your university, it's becoming increasingly clear as you launch into this new semester that you are in the minority. But the solution for us today, regardless of what this pressure looks like for you in your life, whether it's merely cultural or it's somehow really personal from somebody in your life, the solution for us today is the same as the solution was for the church at Colossae. And that solution is this, and this is going to serve as our big idea, so write this down. The big idea is this, when under pressure, followers of Jesus must be resolute in his truth. When under pressure, followers of Jesus must be resolute in his truth. And so what Paul does, of all the things he could do to encourage and bolster the faith of this early church, he chooses simply to remind them of truth. He simply calls them back to the truth that they, re, that they were taught before. No new thing, no new method, just the same old truth. Truth. Of Jesus. And so today, we're going to do the same thing. We will be reminded together of the truth, the truth in which we must stand resolute when we are under pressure. And so this morning, I want to give you four truths. There are way more truths in the letter to the Colossians that Paul calls them to stand resolute in, but this morning, we will look at four, four truths from which the church, followers of Jesus, must not wander going to look like this. We are resolved to believe, number one, Christ's truth is authoritative. Christ's truth is authoritative. Look in verse number eight. Paul writes, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul here is making it very easy for The church to distinguish between good theology and bad theology, and it basically boils down to two things, source and substance. So on the one hand, you have the source and substance of bad theology. Paul calls the substance philosophy and empty deceit. That word empty means devoid of truth. One translation of the Bible translated this high-minded nonsense. It's the type of stuff that sounds really good, sounds really appealing to our, our, our minds. It sounds really intellectual, but it's baseless. There's no truth to it. Where does this garbage, this nonsense, this baseless philosophy, where does it come from? Well, Paul says that it comes from Your granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy. It's been passed down from one generation to the next. It's human tradition. But then he takes it a step further and says it's not merely from your granddaddy's granddaddy's granddaddy passed down from one generation to the next. It's actually coming from the elemental spirits of the world. Now, your translation might have this translated a little differently. Elementary principles or rudimentary principles. Regardless of how it's translated, though, you still end up at the same point. And that's this. The father of lies, Satan, is the authoring voice behind every principle and philosophy in this world that seeks to distort the truth of Christ. You see, untruth is not an accident. It's a strategy. If we learn anything from the garden, if we learn anything from the story of Adam and Eve, it's that behind every lie about God is not merely somebody with good intentions who just got it wrong, but rather a deceptive serpent seeking to distort mankind's view of their creator. This is where the high-minded nonsense, the empty deceit, is stemming from. The source of bad theology? Satan, the father of lies, the spiritual rulers and demonic forces of this world seeking to distort and thwart God's plan. That's the source. The substance is empty deceit. But on the other hand, you have the source and substance of good theology. Paul ends verse 8 by saying, "...and not according to Christ." So, who is the source of good theology? Jesus. What is the substance of good theology? Jesus. You see, when it comes to Christian theology, it all centers on Jesus. We are rooted in him, built up in him, established in him. What Paul is ultimately driving at is that Jesus is the authoritative voice in shaping our theology as Christians, not the worldly philosophies, not human tradition, and not you. You see, in 2020, it was reported that 60% of Americans under age 30 believed that truth is to be determined by the individual. It's relativism. And if that's not startling enough, the same study concluded that only 43% of born-again Christians still embrace absolute truth. 43%. of born-again Christians still embrace absolute truth. See, relativism is one of those empty deceits that Paul is mentioning. It's a modern-day empty deceit. It's a vain philosophy. And the problem with relativism is that it makes you your own authority for truth. You become the source and you become the substance. It's the theology of you. Unless we think that this is just a struggle outside of these walls, the statistic rings out and reminds us, know that this is a pressure on Christians as well to embrace relativism, making us our own authority for truth. But you see, as followers of Jesus, our authority for truth must not be tradition or the culture around us or our own selves. Our authority is Jesus. He is the source of our theology, and he is the substance of our theology. Now bear with me for just a moment. This next segment is for everybody, but I want to speak specifically to those of you who are between the ages of 20 and 30. If you're between the ages of 20 and 30, raise your hand nice and high real quick. There's a lot of you. Can I just say something, submit something to you for your just pondering beyond our time together this morning? Holding to Christ's truth as our authority, the authority of our lives and the authority for our truth, is the most loving thing we can do for our generation. I'm going to say it again. Holding to Christ's uh, Christ's truth as the authority of our lives is the most loving thing we can do for our generation. Why? Because it is Christ's truth that says you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free christ 's truth is the message of hope and salvation for a broken world christ 's truth is a message of rest for a weary soul christ 's truth is our Creator is that our Creator is not distant from and indifferent to his creation, Christ's truth is the gospel. It's good news. So why would we not hold to this with every ounce of our being? Why would we be ashamed of this? Why would we abandon it? Why would we walk away from it when this is the truth that not just we need, but that our generation, our world, our culture needs? Christ's truth is our authority, and that is good news for us and the world outside of these walls. But when we walk away and choose our own voice as our own authority, what we're doing is we're stripping ourselves of the power that God has given to us to push through the darkness and see freedom and light of Christ's truth pierce the darkness of our culture. My friends, Jesus' truth is our authority. We must hold to this truth. We must be resolute in this truth. When we're under pressure, followers of Jesus must be resolute in his truth. Christ's truth is authoritative. But secondly, we are resolved to believe that Christ's rule is supreme. Look in verse number 9. For in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. You see, when Christianity came to this syncretistic culture of Colossae, where they worshipped many gods, there was likely an initial openness to receiving Jesus as, watch this, a god. So they've got Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and Athena. Yeah, let's add Jesus to the list, no problem. All of them equal. But Paul had a little something to say about that. And so in verses 9 and 10, what he does is he establishes that Christ is set apart and set above of all of the rest that these Colossians were worshiping. He first states that Jesus is completely God. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells. See, Jesus doesn't lack an ounce of deity. He's the full package. His deity is not watered down. He's not missing a piece of it. When he became man, he didn't lose any ounce of deity. He is completely man. Very briefly, I don't know if you caught it, but very briefly, Paul mentions the incarnation of Jesus. He says the whole fullness of deity dwells in him bodily. You see, all other gods that these Colossians were worshiping are detached from their worshipers. But Jesus put on flesh and bone, dwelled among us, and now can relate to us. He gets us. And that's something that can only be said of the God who became man. He is entirely fulfilling. Paul says, and you have been filled in him. You see, Apollo might offer healing, and Athena might offer protection in war. These gods are only as beneficial as what they offer, but Jesus is different because he himself is sufficient. In him, we are filled and overflowing. He is not entirely fulfilling just because of what he gives to us. He is entirely fulfilling because he himself is enough for us. But then lastly, what set Jesus apart and above all these other gods is that he is fully reigning. Paul says, who is the head of all rule and authority? He is the preeminent God of gods, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Jesus is in charge. If you enjoy basketball at all, then you're, and even if you don't, you're probably familiar with one of the most common debates in the topic of basketball. Who is the all-time greatest NBA player? I hear Some of y'all get getting... Man, you guys haven't said a word this entire time. I get to this. Man, that's okay. I get it. I get it. Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant? If you think LeBron James belongs in this debate, we have our prayer team that will be available to you (laughs) at the end of service. It doesn't matter who you try to size up and who is in this debate in your mind, that's one thing that might be relative. But you typically get to the statistics, you get to the number of championships, you get to uh, how many years they played in the league and who was on their team and, you know, what was the competition level like back when MJ was playing versus when Kobe or LeBron is playing? What? you you start to debate all of these different and look at all of these different details and you start to size up one player against the other but my friends when you get to the debate the conversation surrounding who is higher when you start to size up the spiritual forces and demonic powers of this world when you start to put side by side the gods that these Colossians were worshiping next to Jesus compared to Jesus. My friends, there is no debate. Paul is making it very clear that Jesus stands unrivaled above all. No power or authority, whether physical or spiritual, is higher than our King Jesus. The spiritual rulers of this world, though, and the demonic powers, they're not the ones who need reminding of this truth. Paul is writing these verses to the church at Colossae. You see, the people who need reminding of this truth is you and me. You see, implicit in this truth is a twofold call for us as believers. Because it's not sufficient to say that Jesus is a king. It's not sufficient to say that Jesus is king above all of the rulers and authorities and gods of this world. That's not sufficient. Jesus is our king. And so the first call is a call to surrender. You are not higher than King Jesus. But I wonder if the life that you live reflects that truth. But then there's a call to trust because our King is in control. I I believe, I really believe this, that so much anxiety infiltrates our minds because we forget this truth. So much anxiety because we forget that Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, but he's also a God of power, mighty in battle. My friends, there is nothing that you can go through in this life, whether spiritually or physically, that your King Jesus is not in charge of, that he is not in complete control over. You are safe in the arms of your reigning King. When under pressure, followers of Jesus must be resolute in his truth, the truth that his truth is authoritative and the truth that his rule is supreme. Yes, over the rulers and the authorities of this world, but also over you and over me and over this church. But thirdly, we are resolved to believe. Number three, Christ's work is sufficient. Look in verse number 12. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him From the dead. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that you probably didn't wake up this morning and, and expect that when you showed up to church, the pastor would be mentioning circumcision. And if you're new to studying the Bible, I know that that language might be a little unfamiliar. You might be sitting here going, What on earth is about to happen? While there's more to dive into in this text than we will have time to go into this morning, In summary, what Paul is addressing was actually a very common issue among the first century church. You see, circumcision was a religious rite that God required of all of Abraham's descendants to be a physical sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And so you fast forward now a couple thousand years and the Jews are still doing this. And what this became was it became the marker... For anybody who wanted to join this community, if you were going to join the Jewish community, if you were going to be an adherent to Judaism, you would mark yourself by physical circumcision. And when you get to the first century Christian church, the Jewish Christians had a hard time shaking their Judaism. And we can understand that. Judaism was a massive part of their culture, their life, their family but as a result, what ha- what ended up happening was these Jewish believers ended up putting pressure on these Gentile believers to essentially double convert. It would be like this: if you uh, if you have a Costco membership, you got the Costco membership because under the impression that you paying for that membership would grant you access into Costco. And so if you were to show up at Costco this afternoon because you need to buy 600 rolls of toilet paper at one time, (laughs) you walk into the entrance, but before you do, you whip out your Costco membership card to prove that you are a member of the Costco community. But Sally at the door says, stop, may I see your Sam's Club membership? Yeah, you're probably sitting here going, what? That doesn't even make sense. I know. You'd sit there and go, why do you need my Sam's Club membership? I'm showing you my Costco membership. I thought that's all we needed to be a part of this community. No, no. New policy. You now need to have a Costco membership and a Sam's Club membership. I know that sounds really bizarre and kind of humorous, but in some ways that's what was happening in the first century Christian church. There was this call to double conversion. The Jewish believers were telling the Gentile believers, hey, if you believe in Jesus, then you also need to be circumcised. If you're going to follow Jesus, you also need to follow Judaism. But Paul is correcting this bad theology, this human tradition that was seeping into and infiltrating the theology of this church. And he says, no, 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 no. When you believed, you were circumcised. But he's not talking about a physical circumcision. He's not talking about a cutting away of physical flesh. He's talking about a spiritual circumcision. He's talking about when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were made a new creation. And that sinful nature that you once had before Christ, apart from Christ, that has become you. You are a new creation, and that sinful nature has no part in your life. Because through Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, it has been severed from you. And on the basis of that alone, you are now a part of the community of believers. And on the, on the bone, you now have community or communion with God himself. Jesus' work is sufficient. He doesn't need your help saving you. He says this is a circumcision made without hands. He doesn't need your hands. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. It's not your work. It's God's. And His work in your life to save you is sufficient. And then he says, Having been buried with Him in baptism... In which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. The new life that we have, that baptism portrays, this new life that we have because the sin nature has been severed from us, this is a result of the powerful working of God in your life. Follower of Jesus, we can rest. See, Paul is speaking to the church here. The church was having a hard time resting. Oh, am I actually saved? Like it was Jesus' work actually enough to bring me into this community, or is there more that's required of me? No, my friends, nothing more is required of you. Jesus' work is sufficient on your behalf. Mark it down. His work is enough. God wants nothing more from you in order to have a relationship with him. And so now you can claim the words of Jesus when he said, come to me all you who labor and are heavily burdened and I will give you rest. Everybody do something with me real quick. Take a really deep breath in. And as you exhale, say, repeat after me, it is finished. The work is done. Rest easy in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Christ's truth is authoritative. Christ's rule is supreme. Christ's work is sufficient. And lastly, we are resolved to believe that Christ, who were dead Paul concludes this paragraph by going into full-on gospel mode, reminding these believers of the victory they have in Jesus. And look, I suppose that's because there is nothing that fortifies our faith more than being reminded that we're on the winning team. That when we're facing pressure from this culture, this pressure to walk away, maybe it's just easier just to give up, just to quit. Paul reminds us, no, 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 no. Jesus won. And this victory that Paul reminds this church of is first a victory over sin. You see, every single person in this room had has the same is born with the same problem, and that problem is sin. And the legal demands of sin, the price that we have to pay as a result of our sin, is death—eternal separation from God for all of eternity. But while dead is our beginning, dead done the for us to go from death to life is the forgiveness of Jesus. And this forgiveness was accomplished when Jesus canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, setting it aside. You see, back in this time when Rome would crucify somebody, the Roman guard would Nailed to the cross an inscription, an inscription of accusation. He had done no wrong. He had never sinned. He had never broken a law. And so his inscription simply said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. G- nailed to the cross of Jesus, then why? Why was he there? My friends, he was there for you and me. He was there for our record record of debt that he canceled by his death on the cross. This is hope, my friend. But if you're sitting here today and you've never put your faith in the sufficient work of Christ on the cross for the covering of your sin, then I say this in love to you, but your record of debt still stands against you. But there is forgiveness in Jesus by faith in the powerful working of God on your behalf. But followers of Jesus, God no longer holds your record of debt against you. He's canceled it. He has set it aside. When he looks at you, he does not have a mile long list of offenses, of trespasses, of sins. No, 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 no. It's been set aside, it's been dealt with, it's been taken care of. He only sees the righteousness of Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I sat across the table from a man. We were enjoying a cup of coffee, and a dear friend of mine. Several years ago, his wife passed away. And he was sharing with me a story of how just a couple of weeks before she passed, he sat by her bedside and he held her hand and he looked at her and he just said, I'm sorry for all of the times that I've made you cry. And she took her hand and she put it behind his head. And she said, I don't remember a single one. And then, holding back tears, much like I am, he looks at me and he said, Joel, she forgave me. You know what that's called? That's called canceling the record of debt, that's called setting aside the offense, that's called Christ like forgiveness. And may it be that among a church, among a group of people that have all experienced that type of forgiveness, where our debt has been settled, our record of debt has been canceled, may it be that what develops among us is a cancel culture, but not a canceling of people and relationships, but a canceling of offenses where because we have experienced the forgiveness that we have in Jesus, we are so freely given what we were so, we are so freely giving what we, were, we have so freely received, this forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus has been victorious over sin, but he's also been victorious over Satan. Verse 15, let's not miss this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. You see, when we as Christians talk about the work that Christ accomplished on the cross, we often stop short in describing its full effect. We talk about the forgiveness, the victory over sin, but we stop short of that. You see, at the cross... Christ also triumphed over the unseen spiritual forces and demonic powers who spearheaded his death. See, killing Jesus was their strategy to thwart God's plan and strip him of his supremacy. So they crucified him and hung him in open shame. But little did they know that through his death on the cross and ultimate resurrection from the dead, Christ settled once and for all any debate surrounding whether he is the supreme ruler. This verse says that in his death on the cross, in his ultimate resurrection, he disarmed them. That word disarmed means he stripped them. He stripped them of their authority and power, and now they are the ones put to open shame. And now Jesus stands Unrivaled as not just chief, but as champion. And so now, as followers of Jesus who have been filled in Christ. When temptations, doubts, trials, this world or spiritual powers increase the pressure on us, tempting us to just walk away from this whole Christianity thing, we can say with our heads high and our hands lifted, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. We glory in his triumph when our past sin and present struggles overwhelm our minds and hearts, pressuring us to believe that we are no longer loved. We confidently proclaim that shame is not not meant for us. It is meant for the enemies of God. It is they who have been stripped and put to open shame. We have been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, which allows us to glory in his triumph in the midst of our failures. Jesus is victorious. And because he is victorious, we stand victorious. Maybe it's this truth that is the pressure release valve for the church. Because in the end, we stand victorious. Today, we can stand resolute, confident, knowing full well how the story ends, knowing full well that we're on the winning side. When under pressure, followers of Jesus must be resolute in his truth. The truth that his truth is authoritative, his rule is supreme, his work is sufficient, and his triumph is decisive. This is Paul's bad theology resistance education. The threat is real, and the call is simple. See to it that no one takes you captive with any theology that is not according to the truth of Christ. Well, as we receive these truths, we want to apply these truths. So let's learn to live. The first question I have for you is this, whose work are you trusting in? Whose work are you trusting in? If you're here today and you're resting in your own works, the things that you can accomplish to bring your self-forgiveness, trusting in your religion you're trusting in your own version of the truth my friends your work is not sufficient it will never be sufficient but come to Jesus because his work on your behalf is sufficient and there's forgiveness in him second question follower of Jesus who is the authority of your life Who's the authority of your life? Who's shaping your life? Who's shaping your version of truth? Is it this culture? Is it just the tradition that mommy and daddy gave you? Is it you? Who is it? If I may just take a quick little commercial break under this question and offer to you just two pieces of counsel as you consider this question of who the authority of your life is. I would just submit to you number one select your influences wisely don't let the algorithm choose your influences for you our theology is far too precious and far too important for us to be a victim of the algorithm of social media let God's word be the authoritative voice in shaping your theology but then second I would just submit to you let God change your mind See, the reality is for so many of us, the world's philosophies and empty deceits have, may have more an effect on our minds right now than we even realize. We've already adopted these philosophies that call, Paul is calling the church to not be taken captive by. And so as you submit to the authoritative, authoritative voice of God, submit to him changing your mind might be a painful process it might be a long process but it's a worthwhile process and lastly who do you know that needs to hear the truth city point church our city our valley needs the gospel may we be faithful in standing resolute in the gospel but also faithful to proclaim it to the culture around us Can we pray together? Our Savior, we are so thankful for who you are and for the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. We are thankful that as your followers, we're here this morning and we stand triumphant, not because of us, but because of you. It's humbling to think about that, God. It's humbling to be reminded that we did nothing to deserve, nothing to earn. The victory, the salvation, the redemption that we have received so graciously from you. God, may you bolster the faith of your people. Establish us in your truth. May we live confidently in the authoritative truth and authoritative voice of Jesus. And as a result, God, I pray that the rulers and authorities that seek to distort you, that seek to thwart your plan here in Tempe, that you would use City Point Church to push back the darkness. That we would not buckle under the pressure, that we would push on in full confidence in our triumphant Savior. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us today. To find out more about City Point Church, visit us online at citypointaz.com. You can also find us on social media at City Point AZ. Be sure to leave a review. Subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. Now from us here at City Point Church, go seeking to live on mission for the glory of God with this truth stamped over your life, that you are loved.